the book of John, chapter 15, 26 through 16. Oh, I have it wrong here. I don't know. I can't remember the end verse. Sorry. My bad. It'll be on here. <laughs> 16, 7, I think. Uh, when the companion comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You will testify too, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you so that you won't fall away. They will expel you from the synagogue. The time is coming when those who kill you will think that they are doing a service to God. They will do these things because they don't know the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you about them. But now I go away to the one who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Yet because I have said these things to you, you are filled with sorrow. I assure you that it is better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the companion won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will show the world it is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will show the world it is wrong about sin because they do not believe in me. He will show the world it was wrong about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you won't see me anymore. He will show the world it was wrong about judgment because this world's ruler stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, but you cannot handle it now. However, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He won't speak on his own, but he will say whatever he hears and will proclaim to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and proclaim it to you. Everything that the Father has is mine. That's why I said that the Spirit takes what is mine and will proclaim it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I was in college. It may have been my junior or senior year. It may have been earlier. I don't really remember. What I do remember is that as a ministry major at Northwest Nazarene University, uh, something that at the time the school did every year, I don't know if they still do it, but um, for those who are in the ministry majors, they would pair you up with a professor from the school and a pastor from the community to have kind of a conversation. It was a chance for ministry majors uh, like myself to go and to sit with people who were more knowledgeable, had more experience, and just ask questions. So, So there I was in Williams Hall. This is a picture of Williams Hall. This is called the God Building, or at least it was in my time. Is it still called the God Building? Grady, is it still called? The, okay. This is where the School of Theology and Christian Ministry is sort of housed at Northwest Nazarene University. Uh, I was sitting in the office of Dr. Wendell Bowes. Wendell Bowes was the Old Testament professor um, at the time that I was there. Uh, Wendell Bowes was a wonderfully dry man with a great sense of humor, um, who when one time he was told that... Um, He had bad handwriting when he was writing on the screen. This is an overhead days, my friends. He was writing on the overhead, and um, some of the students were complaining about the the state of his handwriting, and so he started writing it in Hebrew instead and said, is this better? (laughs) It's funny because, all honesty, my Hebrew writing is better than my English writing. Like, it's more legible, so I get it. Anyway, 
I was sitting with him and another pastor from the community. I don't remember his, who the pastor was, um, but I remember them both kind of sitting very um, stately behind Dr. Bo's desk and, and, uh, and sitting me down for a conversation about ministry. Um, I don't remember much of the conversation. In fact, I only remember one part of the conversation. That was like the last five minutes. So I, I was a ministry major. I was looking at kind of the future of what ministry looks like. And, and they were telling me stories about pastors. And it didn't all sound that encouraging to me. I don't suspect that was their intention to be discouraging to me. But at the end of it, I was thinking, man, this sounds like it's tough. I mean, if only if I knew, right? Um, I was thinking, this sounds tough. It sounds like not a lot of work necessarily. I'm, hard work's not a problem. It's just sort of like, on balance, is this worth it? That was the thought that was in my head. On balance, is, is being a pastor worth it? And so I, I put this to, to these two men who had experience, were men of God, who I believed were, were passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And I said, tell me, is it worth it? Is being a pastor really worth it? In the end, is it worth it? I was hoping for an answer, something to the effect like, absolutely. That's the kind of question you ask where if there's a pause, you wonder about it. Is it worth it? Well, is not what you want to hear. As a, I don't know, junior, senior in college, embarking on kind of this journey that I believe God has called me on to, is it worth it? I don't remember the answer. Quite honestly, I just remember it was not an immediate yes. That bothered me quite a bit. In fact, it made me a little angry in the beginning. I remember thinking, they're supposed to be encouraging me and helping me, and yet they can't even tell me if this whole thing is worth it. We'll get to why that was the wrong question in a minute. But just at the time, I remember feeling very unsettled in my heart. I'm not entirely sure um, I'm excited about what's going to be happening to me over the next, I don't know how many years of my life. I was feeling a little bit of apprehension, fear. Now, I mention that because I wonder if that might be a little bit of what the disciples are feeling at the Last Supper. If you remember the context, if you were here last week, um, you've heard this, but if you weren't, I'll go through it again. Uh, the context of our scripture today is Jesus with his disciples at what we call the Last Supper. Right? So, so think about this. They, they've gathered together to celebrate the Passover. I mean, the Passover, I, the only thing I can equate it to in the Jewish calendar, Passover is kind of like our Christmas. Right? We get excited about it. It is a joyful and wonderful time. It is a time where we celebrate God's kind of inbreaking kingdom in the world. We sing Handel's Messiah, wonderful counselor, almighty God, right? All that wonderful stuff. We throw parties. We, you know, exchange gifts. We eat together, um, right? Christmas is a wonderful celebratory time. That's kind of what Passover would have been kind of like, again, not exactly, but kind of like for the Jews of the first century, right? Remember Passover, Passover is the celebration of what God did for the people of Israel in Egypt. Okay, quick recap. 400 years of slavery. 
Moses comes along, let my people go. Pharaoh says, okay, then no, then okay, then no, then okay, then no. And finally, God says, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to show that I am God and not these gods, so-called gods of Egypt. God delivers the people out of captivity, out of slavery. First time, 400 years, they are a free people into the wilderness and into ultimately the promised land. It is a time where the people of Israel celebrate and still do celebrate God's liberating action. Right? It's the ultimate standing stone, the ultimate Ebenezer. It's like, look what God did for us. God brought us out of Egypt. That has been the narrative the people of Israel have come back to over and over and over and over again throughout history, up until Jesus' day, and even up until now. God's delivering hand, God's mighty action. It is a time of wonderful celebration for them. And so the disciples and Jesus have come together and the disciples probably are thinking, yay, celebration, fun, happy time, right? Let's celebrate. Let's look forward to what God is doing. And, and on top of all of that, they have this hope in them that Jesus is not just a Messiah, not just a deliverer, but the one, the one who would set things right once and for all. He is the new Moses. If God brought the people out of Egypt, out of bondage through Moses, They believed that Jesus was God's anointed one to bring them out of bondage, to free them from captivity, to bring them into their own once again. They were a conquered people. They lived under the tyranny of Rome, and they were hoping for a deliverer. And the the disciples had put that hope and that trust rightly in Jesus. And so here they are. They're gathering together for Passover. It's in Jerusalem. They're excited. Perhaps there's anticipation in the air. Perhaps they think now is the time. This is when it's going to happen. And Jesus starts off the meal in a strange way by washing their feet. And they're thinking, this is weird. He's a deliverer, a mighty act. He's supposed to lead the people to freedom. And he's washing our feet. That's what slaves and servants do. So the whole evening starts off weird. And then Jesus begins to talk to them about what is going to happen. He tells them that one of them is going to betray them, which is not a great way to start the celebration of Passover. They're thinking, yay, liberation, God is doing mighty things. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then Jesus begins to talk in other strange ways by saying things like, I am going away. I'm going away? Liberator. And now he's telling them that he's leaving going out the door, saying goodbye. It's kind of a downer. As we talked about last week, Jesus talks about this, and he says, yes, sorrow has filled your hearts, and I know you're sad, but, but I will send you another one, and if I go away, another one will come, and this advocate who will be with you. And, and they're kind of okay, and then Jesus begins to talk more and more about what things will be like for them. As we read in our scripture this morning, Jesus says, guess what's going to happen? They're going to throw you out of the synagogues. The synagogues are where these people worshipped. This was their community. And the disciples were followers of Jesus, but they were Jews. Those two things aren't incompatible, weren't incompatible. And, and, and they thought, wait a minute, they're going to kick us out of the synagogues? Jesus, you're the one. You're the right interpreter of the law. You're the one who, who tells us how to be and what to do. And you're, you're, you're supposed to one who's redeeming and people are supposed to follow you. They're going to kick us out of the synagogues? And then Jesus says, even more so, guess what's going to happen? They're going to kill you and think that they're doing service to God because of it. That puts a damper on the evening, wouldn't you think? 
That would put a damper on your evening if I were to say that to you today. Guess what? Christ the liberator, you follow him, but they're going to kill you because of it. It's hard words to hear. It's hard words for the people, particularly for the disciples, to listen to. Jesus is going away, and apparently while Jesus is gone, they're going to expel us from the synagogue, and they're going to kill us and think that they're doing it as an act of worship. I don't know how they're feeling about Jesus at this point, but they're probably feeling a little abandoned. I don't know if you... Oh, you can read that. (laughs) Thanks for abandoning us. That's how they must be feeling. Abandoned. Left out. Jesus, what's going on? I mean, you've promised us these things. You've told us these things. And we've followed you. We've put our whole lives into who you are, into following you. We've left friends. We've left family. Our kids haven't seen us in a year. I don't know. Stuff like that. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, Jesus, we have put all of our hope in you. And, and not only are you abandoning us, but things aren't going to be great, are they? Yeah. Because he's going away. And they're not feeling great about it. And they're thinking, Jesus, if this is what it means to follow you, we've got to wonder if it's all really worth it. In the end, Jesus, where is this all going? If you're going away, where's that leave us? Jesus, of course, tells them that he, he says all of this so that they'll know. He wants to be upfront about what it means to follow him. Now, he hasn't been secretive about any of this, right? He's not lied to them about what following them, him is going to look like. He said, a servant isn't greater than their master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. He's said that to them. They know this. This isn't new information to them. And yet, here during Passover, when they think maybe things are getting better, when they think Jesus is going to finally make the move, right, to restore the kingdom to Israel... It really just kind of puts a break and a damper on the whole thing. He says, I'm going away. He said, I I didn't tell you these things at the beginning because quite frankly, if I'd have told you at the beginning what was going to happen, well, (laughs) not entirely sure that you would follow. Of course, he says, I'll send the spirit to you. Spirit will be with you. The advocate will be with you. But, but things are going to be bad. Arrests, beatings. And Jesus says something interesting about all this. He says, I have said this to you so that you will not fall away or that you will not stumble. You'll have to forgive the image, but this is what comes to my mind. He's, he's basically saying, I've said these things to you so that when they happen, they won't be something that will cause you to trip, to fall, and lose your chili, as this might say. But So that when I go away, you will not stumble. He's basically saying, I just need to give you all the information. If we go back in Jesus' teachings, he has said to them, right, count the cost. No one builds a tower without thinking whether or not they can complete it count the cost. No one goes to war without considering what's going to happen in the midst of this war if 
We're willing to risk everything for the sake of whatever it might be. Jesus says, I'm going away, and you need to know these things because they're going to happen. It's not always going to be great for you. But what's interesting is that Jesus comes to this point where he says, it's actually better for you that I go away. Now, if I'm the disciples, I'm going to find that hard to believe. In, in fact, as a disciple, however many years later, I, I sometimes find that hard to believe. I mean, wouldn't things just be much easier if Jesus were sitting here with us? Wouldn't things just be easier if it were Jesus teaching you and me and not me? I, I mean, I, I interpret these things, but Jesus, he knows them. He authored them. Wouldn't it be easier if Jesus was just here with us? Surely that's what the disciples are thinking. Jesus, how can you say it is better that you go away? How can you say that, it, that it's better if you leave? Jesus, you're here and we like it. We have put our faith and our trust in you. If you leave, what does that leave us? Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, the Father will send another advocate, a counselor, a guide, the spirit of truth, all these things in my name. He essentially says, if I stay here, the spirit doesn't come. If I go away, the spirit comes and it's better for you for the spirit to come. We've talked about this a little bit last week as we, as we talked about what it meant to, to, to follow the advocate, who the advocate was. But, but, but let's just put it in, in perspective this way. Jesus was a man. Okay, we are Christians. One of the things that we profess when we are Christians that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, right? He lived in a place during a time. He was a person. And like all of us, as persons, Jesus was bound by space and by time. Jesus could not be more than one place at a time, right? You, you, we might have all sorts of crazy beliefs about Christ and about Christ's divinity, but the scriptures clearly say Jesus was at one place at one time. He was the presence of God, son of God, God himself, but in that he was at one place at one time. And so basically what Jesus is saying here, and I know it's hard to wrap your head around because it's hard for me to wrap my head around, is he basically says, if I'm here, it's me here, right here, right now, which means that if I'm here with you in Jerusalem and there's other people up in Caesarea, I'm here and not there. The presence of God is here with me and not there. It, it, I'm not sure how that works out, but that's what Jesus is saying. I am here. I am bound by this space, by this time. But he says, if I go away... The Father will send the Spirit who will be with you always and everywhere. You see, Jesus is bound by space and by time. As he is with the disciples at that moment, if he doesn't go away, and there's a lot entailed to him going away, which includes his crucifixion, his resurrection, ultimately his ascension. But basically, if he doesn't go away, if none of that happens, then he is that person right there, space, time. But Jesus says, if I go away, the Father will send the advocate. If I go, advocate comes. If I stay, no advocate. Again, how that all works out in sort of the Trinitarian ways, we could spend hours, weeks, days, years talking about it. I'd be happy to, by the way. 
But for the sake of today, Jesus says, if I go away, I will send you a spirit. And that is better for you, he says, than if I stick around. Which means that for us, however many years later, a couple thousand years later, it is actually better for us to be recipients of the spirit who is in our midst than if Jesus Christ were here physically as the person Jesus, as the disciples knew him in the first century. I know that's pretty hard to believe. It's a little mind-bending to me. I'm honest with you. But the truth of the matter is, the spirit hadn't come. If Jesus was here in our midst, that means he's not across town or up the street for that matter. Right? I mean, let's say, just for the sake of argument, if Jesus was here in our midst physically, that means he wouldn't be over at Abundant Life in Kelso. But we don't believe that's true, do we? Because Jesus isn't our sole possession as this church. Jesus is the possession of the church, really of the world. And so Jesus says, it's better that I go away. Because guess what? That means that Peter, if you're in Longview and Andrew's in, I don't know, Caesarea, Israel, by the Spirit, God will be present in both places. The Spirit can speak to you there and here and always. It is better, he says, that I will go away because then the Spirit comes and convicts the world. Convicts the world in sin and righteousness and judgment. The the Spirit will come and do all these things that that God desires to do in the world. Furthering ministry, proving that that Christ is raised from the dead and, and convicting people and bringing them to relationship with Christ and all the wonderful things that God does for us and in us and through us. That's because of the Spirit that has been let loose in the world. It's good news, basically, Jesus says, that he goes away. And that's sometimes hard for us to handle. But we have to realize that by faith, what Jesus has told us is that it is just as good, if not better, for the Spirit to be working in me and in you and in this place and among this people, guiding us, leading us, directing us, Because as the Spirit does it here, the Spirit does it in abundant life. For First Christian, and the community church, and so on, and so on, and so on. This morning, wherever the people of God are gathered, the Spirit is working and moving. And in fact, even outside of these walls where the people of God are gathered, the Spirit is moving, convicting the world, bringing them, restoring all things to God. I mean, it is good news. It's hard to believe that it's good news that Jesus goes away. But if what he says is true, and I believe it is, it really is good news. Because it means the presence and power of God and the Spirit is let loose everywhere. In the world. Among the people here, near, far. Not bound by time or by space or by language. But at work. Now, what Jesus says to his disciples is, I didn't tell you this all from the beginning because, well, you wouldn't have followed me. And he says, even now there's more I want to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. 
You see, when I take myself back to that interview I had with Dr. Bose and the other, I think there are things they could have told me that I wouldn't have been able to handle. I'm a different person at 42 than I was at 19, 20, 21. I don't think I would have been able to handle it if they'd have said, well, here's some of the stuff you will have to endure and go through. Here's some of the things that you will feel and think about yourself, about others. Here's some of the things you'll hear about yourself and others. I suspect in their wisdom, when they went and they heard the question, is it worth it? They thought in their minds, well, that's just the wrong question, isn't it? Because following Jesus cannot be something that we sort of place on a scale and go good and bad. The good outweighs the bad. I, I I think that's the wrong question for us to ask. Because good is so subjective and so is bad for that matter. Right? I think ultimately the question that, that I should have been asking back then and that perhaps they were hoping I had the wisdom to ask was, is it right? Is it good? And the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. Is it right to follow Jesus? Unequivocally, without question, yes it is right. Is it good to follow Jesus without question, unequivocally? Yes, it is good to follow Jesus. Will it always feel good on balance? No, it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it, it causes us to say things and, and act in ways that people don't really like. Now, it's not an excuse to be rude and mean and just nasty people. That's not what I'm talking about. But sometimes we have to take stands and say, I am unwilling to participate in that. Or, that's not right to do in the name of God. And people around us don't always like that. On the balance, is it worth it? I'm not sure we can weigh it in such terms. Is it good? Absolutely. In part because Jesus has said, no matter what you go through, no matter where you go, no matter how you succeed or how you suffer, guess what? I am with you and the spirit is with you. And guess what? When you don't know what to do and you don't know who to ask, the spirit will guide you. And this is what Jesus said. The spirit will guide you into all truth. Think of the weight of what Jesus has promised here. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. Because the fact of the matter is, Jesus was a person at this particular time who lived in the first century. Guess what Jesus didn't have? Jesus didn't have an iPhone or a Facebook account. Jesus didn't have access to news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now, could Jesus have talked about those types of things? Sure, but the people who were around him wouldn't have understood it. You see, Jesus knew that there were times would be coming when his disciples, his people, those who follow after God would have to deal with things that Jesus couldn't address because it hadn't come up yet or the world didn't know it. One of the things that I think about is the 
ministry to the Gentiles. At this time, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, they have no conception of what it will look like when Gentiles start following Jesus. In fact, what happens when Gentiles start following Jesus, the church has to ask, what does this mean? Do they have to become Jews? Because we're all Jews. Do they have to follow kosher laws? Do they have to do this, that, and the other thing? They don't know. There is huge arguments in the church. The f- biggest argument the church had in the first century, in the first few years of it, was what do we do with Gentiles? Because they didn't see this coming. And Jesus didn't really tell them how to deal with it. But we have narrated in Acts a couple different times where the church came together and said, we have a problem with this Gentile thing. We don't know what to do. Some people of us say that they have to become Jews. They have to follow kosher laws. They have to convert. They have to become circumcised, all that sort of stuff. And there was others among them that says, well, if God's doing this in them and God's calling them and God is saving them and God is clearly giving them God's spirit, why would we ask anything else? Why would anything else be, God clearly accepts them. Why should we ask for more? And so they have this argument. What does it mean to be a follower of Yahweh God, a person who follows Jesus as well in the context of all of this? And they go away and they, they have a meeting. It's the first council of the church. The elders get together in Jerusalem and they pray. They hear stories. They hear Peter talk about what's going on. They hear other things. And ultimately, after they pray, they come out and they say something that's very interesting to me. It seems good to the spirit and to us that we should place no further burden on the Gentiles other than, and there's a couple things. Clearly what happened is they went away and said, let's listen to what the spirit would would say about all of this because we don't know what to do. So we we lay it at the the feet of the spirit and and all these people from different languages and different parts of the world come together and and, and Jesus himself in, in his physical form is gone. He's ascended to heaven, but they have this tremendous belief that the spirit is at work in the midst and that the spirit not only can, but will, will guide them into truth. And so they come out of that meeting and James says, this is what we believe the spirit has said. It seems good to the spirit and to us. And all of a sudden, this new thing that was confronting the church, the church is able to deal with because the spirit at work in their midst, guiding them into all truth. Now, there are some truths the spirit may not reveal to us. I don't know what's going on at Area 51. I don't know where Jimmy Hoffa is buried, and I don't think the Spirit is going to lead us into that truth. And the church is forced to meet with new situations, as we will. How do we deal with a 24-hour news cycle? How do we deal when even facts are in dispute? Alternative facts? How do we deal with a culture which is able to talk about one another without ever being face-to-face where we can demean and demonize one another on an electronic device? How do we deal with those things? Jesus doesn't tell us, not explicitly. Some of us want to say, well, take this thing and just toss it in the trash, which, I don't know, it's not a bad idea. Some will say, no, it's a tool like anything can be used for good or evil. How do we use it for good? Things like that, issues big and small, the church faces. 
we have been promised by Jesus that he will guide us into truth. And that what the Spirit tells us, when we we talk about the Spirit, it's not like this somehow disconnected from God or just sort of secondhand information, but but the Spirit, Jesus says, will speak what I speak. And what I speak is what the Father speaks. And so that we can have trust, we can believe that when God speaks by the Spirit to the church, we can trust. We can trust that God is moving and speaking in our midst. And if you think that that sounds heavy, it is. If you go, wow, that is a weighty responsibility, it is. It is not a light thing to be in the presence of God. And yet it is our privilege and it is our call. For basically what Jesus says is just as Jesus glorifies the Father, the Spirit will glorify the Father. And then he says, and you too will glorify God. In our words, as we listen, as we move through the world, our job is to give testimony. To say, this is the way that God has called us to live. Let's walk in it, but also to give glory and testimony to the God who has come into this world. Who has, in all of our brokenness, says, I have come that you might be whole. The God who makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. The God who breaks the bow and shatters the spear. The God of who we read about, whose house will be lifted above nations, where the, where the, the nations will stream, where they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, where they will learn war no more. This is the God who calls us. This is the world in which we are called to live. This is the way we are called to walk. And it's by the spirit that we are led into these things that we might give glory to God as we live by his kingdom and as we pray for his kingdom to come. We are, in short, to be a taste of the kingdom. To be a little sample so that when people meet us, they get just a a hint of what God's rule might look like. Not as we condemn necessarily. Not as we tell everyone how they ought to act. But as we interact and say, this is the path that we follow. This is the one whom we serve. This is the one whom we love and who loves us and who loves you and who calls us in your na- his name to love one another. To forgive our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us. We are called to be tasted his kingdom. And all this is made possible because Jesus says, I'm going away. For as Jesus is crucified, rises again, and ultimately ascends into heaven, the spirit comes on Pentecost upon the church and the world gets its first glimpse of the kingdom of God in its midst. 
And the early church shows us how we submit to the Spirit and follow the Spirit humbly but boldly that the Spirit might lead us into all truth. We can have confidence that the one who calls us is faithful. We can have confidence that the one whom we follow, Jesus Christ, is leading us by the power of the Spirit, that God is in our midst as the Spirit is in our midst to lead us and to guide us and to show us how to be people of the kingdom that we might follow and give the world a taste of the coming kingdom of God. As the worship comes back up, we are inheritors of the Spirit. You, me, anyone who follows after Jesus are promised the Spirit is at work in us. I, I want to say that the Spirit is given to us, not simply for our own personal use, if that makes sense. We can't treat the Spirit like our personal commodity, like my gift of the Spirit, my, the thing that the Spirit does for me. While those things happen, the Spirit is the gift to the church. We are given these things and we are empowered and we are gifted so that we might, as a community, testify to the one who has called us. I like to think of it as not all of us, not any of us has the answer to anything. But as we come together, somehow the spirit gives life to this body of believers and says, here's the path that you are to walk as a community. Go forward and be agents of my kingdom. But we can trust that the spirit leads and leads well. The promise of the Spirit is not, you can hope that the Spirit will be in you, and sometimes the Spirit will help you. What Jesus says is you can be confident that the Spirit is given and is in your midst. If I go away, the Spirit will come, and the Spirit not might, not could, not may someday, but will guide you into all truth so that you might know and that we might know how to be the people of God we are called to be as agents of his rule in his way in our world.